So we read uh, from Daniel 9 earlier, we read this prayer. And uh, so um, a little bit later, I may read portions of that again, just because uh, we're going to have to refer back to it. Um, One of the fun things about um, being a parent is um, when your kids um, are little, when they get older, they're not quite as much fun. But when they're little, they're, they're a lot of fun. Uh, when my sons Justin and Derek were little, um, Kathy, uh, they were tempted by cookies because they were kids. And so there were, so Kathy learned to have me put the, the Oreos, the box of Oreos above those little cabinet, uh, those little cupboards that are above the refrigerator to put them up there so that the kids couldn't get to them, right? Um, because if they could get to them, they were gone. So, um, and and the kids knew that that um, that those cookies were off limits. They weren't allowed to just go up and eat them. You know that that wasn't permitted. Um, and to remove the temptation, obviously, we kept them out of reach. So one day, I walk into the kitchen, and Derek had climbed up onto the kitchen counter, and then up on the refrigerator. And he had the cupboard door open, and he had the cookie uh, box of cookies out, and he had his grubby little paws in the in the box of cookies. And I said, Eric, uh, Derek, what, what do you think you're doing? And he paused a second, and he's he's a really quick thinker, and he said. Justin wanted a cookie, and I'm getting it for him. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> sure you are. Um, he, it's kind of cute, because he simultaneously diverted um, the attention that he was receiving, uh, you know, blame from himself, and um, moved it, you know, kicked his brother un- under the bus. So, so that was kind of, that was pretty smart of him. Um, and then I said, that's really funny, Derek, because Justin's not here. He's over at his friend's house. So I don't think you could have asked him if he, you know, or he could have asked you that or told you that he wanted a cookie. And the look on his face is just absolutely priceless. I ain't like, like, what am I going to say now? And he says, still quick thinking. Well, he told me yesterday that he wanted one, and I'm getting it ready for when he comes home. Right? Of course. Of course, there were some unpleasant consequences of his actions and his words. And he was sort of confused as to why I was upset with him, and why I was being so mean to him, and and he had no sorrow or sadness or regret. He was just, you know, I, uh, he thought he had convinced me. He he wouldn't even acknowledge that he was guilty, that that he'd done anything wrong. Kathy always said it was really a good thing that he was cute, because if he hadn't have been cute, he'd have, you know, he'd have, he'd have not he'd not be around, you know. Like, but he was really cute. And that's kind of our nature, isn't it? God tells us his expectations of us. And when we get caught with a handful of Oreos, 
we protest and we argue and we blame others and we point the finger and we'll do almost anything but acknowledge our fault or our sin. Um, and by the way, getting caught is not the same as confessing our wrongs. <laughs> if Derek had simply said, Dad, I was trying to get a cookie. <laughs> I knew it was wrong. I just wanted a cookie. I'm sorry. Things might have been a little different, but he was defiant. And that's what we do. No shame, no sorrow, no confession. And thus there's no opportunity for mercy or forgiveness. There's no freedom that we can walk into. There's no joy. There's nothing that that our behavior isn't changed. And and the sad thing is, is our sin isn't cute. Our sin isn't amusing. Our sin isn't just grabbing some cookies out of a cookie jar. Our sin stinks to high heaven. It, it's horrible. It hurts people. When, when I sin, when I lie, when I cheat, when, I, when I, I'm not truthful, when I, when I um, hurt people uh, with words and actions, when I do the things that are wrong, they really do hurt people. As we've been working through the book of Daniel, we recognize that like the people of Israel, we live in exile. A self-imposed exile. The people of Israel had turned away from God and he warned them that they were choosing the way of captivity. For 70 years now, they've been in exile. They're prisoners of the Babylonian Empire and first of all, and then the Medes and the Persians They're captured people. Throughout all that, Daniel has remained remarkably faithful to God. Over those many years, he's actually thrived in captivity in this this, uh, horrible place, this hard place, this exile place. Matter of fact, he's a man who receives honor and glory and some praise um, from from the people he interprets dreams from for the leaders and he and he um, tells their visions and what they mean god gives him extraordinary powers and and status and position he he never uses that power have you noticed that he never uses that power to do anything um to to rescue his people he doesn't use it to to um un- you know to show off how good he is and and how right he is He honors God by refusing to bow his knee to the emperors and the rulers, even when they insist on on that happening. And now this old man is in his 80s, and and he remembers that God has promised to rescue his people and to return them to the promised land. He's he's been reading in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet, and, and the prophet had promised, or the prophet had said that if Israel kept and did what they should do, then, then, um, then they would return and things would be rebuilt. And but Daniel recognized the people haven't turned away. They're still up on top of the refrigerator getting cookies, right? They're, they're still doing the wrong things. They're, they haven't turned. Their hearts haven't turned. They haven't learned the, their lesson. They haven't learned through the pain and the suffer the 
horrific struggle, the painful struggle, the, he, all the evil that's been put on them by, by these rulers, they haven't learned at all anything. And so he turns to God in prayer. Boris turns a slide, but apparently I can't do that. It was, because it moved. Ah. So he turns to God in prayer. Um, This is kind of a little idea of what we often pray like, right? Pray, um, did it work? Yay. Uh, Praise God. Um, No, it didn't work. Uh, Oh, well, God works in mysterious ways, right? We, We pray... Uh, and we measure effectiveness of prayer. We we start with how effective we are. Like, did I get what I want? Really, is what it boils down to, right? Like, did God perform for me? Did He give me what I needed? Does He give me what I want? Um, and um, and if He does, great. He's great. If He doesn't, most of us are a little hesitant to say, "Well, then He doesn't." doesn't matter it's he doesn't count I, he's nothing to me no we we're nice christian eve type people and so so we we decide that well he's he's working it out it's going to happen later right we, we we'll just cut him some slack maybe he's not as powerful as we think he should be or or uh, we always make prayer about us we always measure the effectiveness of our prayers by by the impact by how we feel about the answer I love that God answers no a lot. I'm an old man and getting older, and God has said no to me a lot. I'm, I'm not as old as John, um, but, but I'm old. And, 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 um, and God, like, God has said no to a lot of things in my life, things that I was perfectly fine. They're perfectly good for me. I'm sure they're good for me. I, I know better than God, and, and God says no. God says, wait a lot. A lot. <laughs> Not now, later. And sometimes God says, yes. Last, last week I was here and I could hardly walk and I was in so much pain and went and sat in the healing chair in the morning and then I told Eric, I said, those morning people, they, they, don't, they must not pray because I, right, I, I still hurt, right? And, and so I came at night, and, and then I sat in the healing chair again, and after that service, I, I still, I, you guys don't pray any better than the morning people pray. But then I, I woke up the next morning, and I didn't have a muscle spasm. I didn't hurt at all. It was amazing. I, I have never had that happen. I, there's usually, you know, the leftover effects of God answered that prayer, so thank you for praying, and thank you, morning people, for praying as well. Because uh, God did say yes. Sometimes he says yes, and sometimes he says it in miraculous ways. We pray. And, and when we pray, if you look at, at Daniel's prayer, he starts with shame. He recognizes he's ashamed, right? He recognizes... This is what Meow sees is what Meow did, right? Like, oh, yes, I did it, right? That's what shame is. Shame is recognizing things are not the way they're supposed to be, and it's my fault. I did it. It's me. 
It's not somebody else. It's not, I'm, I'm getting the cookie for Justin. It, it's me. Shame is recognizing it's not the way it's supposed to be, that I did it. Now, now there's godly shame, and then there's satanic shame. And, and I want to differentiate that because you'll, you'll hear me say this all, whatever God, however many years God gives me. Um, godly shame is that which calls us to repentance, to turning back, to turning away. So Daniel looks at their circumstances and he, he's ashamed. His people are, these people are ashamed. They had this uh, fabulous opportunity to live while in captivity, while out there in a, in a horrible way. They, they could have lived righteous lives. They could have lived godly lives, but they didn't. And shame, that shame is a beautiful gift from God. <laughs> we don't think of shame as a gift, do we? Like, we think of shame as shameful. Like, ugh, you know, I, I, yuck. Um, I don't want to feel ashamed. And, and we kind of pr- pretend that we're not ashamed when in fact we are. But but shame is, is uh, that God gives us as a gift is that which turns us from that's, that which is killing us, that which is harming us, that which is keeping us completely uh, submerged in, in, uh, to, in our captivity and, and keeps, us, um, keeps us in the place of suffering and, and hurt and fear and doubt. Satanic shame, by the way, is the shame where something is known when you've made it, when you've talked to God about it, when you've, when you've shared it, when, when you've walked through it and said, yes, I did what I did is shameful. And then God forgives you. And God says, when he forgives us, he, it's like we never did it. Do you understand how beautiful that is? Like, like God doesn't like remember. He actually chooses to forget the evil that we've done. In Christ, He takes it on, and 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 so satanic shame is Satan coming to us and all his little minions, and he uses voices of people we love. Yeah, but you know how you are. <laughs> You're just a mess. One of the hardest things in my old age, one of the hardest things for me to get used to is the constant, um, like I have these regular sins, right? And so often I fall into the trap of doing that, of, of committing that regular normalized sin because Satan says, you're worthless. <laughs> you couldn't change if you wanted to. And that's from Satan. That's not from God. Godly shame leads to repentance. And so when I do that which I should not do, then I, then, then I get invited into acknowledging that shame. And then we say, we're sorry, right? Do you have a card that stops short of saying, I'm sorry, yet vaguely hints at some wrongdoing, right? Like, uh, like sorrow is this deep, sadness about the impact of your sin 
a deep sadness about the reality of how far you've walked from God, how you've turned. And Daniel understands that with these people, that they've walked far from God. And he is deeply saddened. He's in tears. If you look at your sin, if you become aware of it, if shame doesn't lead to sorrow and sadness, then it might not be that you are actually understanding the impact of your sin. Sorrow. Funny how one can look back on a sorrow one thought one might well die of at the time and know that one had not yet (coughs) reckoned the tenth part of true grief. Sorrow is grieving your sin. Sorrow is grieving the impact that it has on others, on the community, on the world around you, grieving the impact that it has on God. It's hard. It's hard to look at what we've done because you have to be honest then and, and recognize that that's true. Confession is agreeing about what is true, right? Stupid Facebook. Priest already knows, right? Not because he has a special connection with God, but because he's on Facebook, right? We do that, right? Like people are well aware of your sin because they're impacted by it. You're well aware of my sins because you're impacted by them. So confession... What Daniel's doing is confessing. Notice he's confessing on behalf of Israel, but he's also confessing, in in the passage we read earlier, he's also confessing um, his own sin, right? Isn't that kind of funny? Because we, we sort of think of Daniel as the hero of the tale, right? Like all through the, like, when did he sin? He didn't bow his knee. He was righteous and godly and good. And he did all the right stuff. Like, hey, great, right? But he said, I confessed, what? The sins of my people, the sins of my ancestors, the, the generational sin, those who came before me, and my own sin. Confession is agreeing with God about what is true. What's true? What's reality? You can't make up stuff. Confession says, here's what's true about me. It really is true. I really did lie. I, I really did intentionally hurt someone. I, I really did do that. I really lost my temper. It's true. We... We have a hard time with confession. It's, it's interesting, the scripture calls us to confess our sins one to another, and we go, huh, no, thank you. And a lot of us do that, right? With, I'll, I'll confess to God, because, <laughs> you know, I do it in my head. You know, you notice you don't even do it out loud, right? Because I just confess in my head. God knows, he can read my thoughts. Woo-hoo. Done, next, right? 
But there's something powerful about saying your sin to someone. There's something powerful about saying it out loud to God. There's something powerful about the reality of knowing that what you're saying is true, that you really did do that thing that kind of everyone knows that you did. When, when we come to that place, when Daniel comes to that place, there's no, I'm a pretty good person hope you're grading on the curve. I'm better than the other people, right? Like, you're going to give me a break, right, God? No, there's just this plea for mercy and plea for forgiveness. Like, it doesn't, it, confession doesn't lead you to get to that point where you say, eh, I'm a pretty good person. <laughs> I love um, the confessionary hymn that Lane wrote. And and I remember when when she first wrote it, and Eric and I were sitting here late one night, and she she was here, and she had just finished that song, so she played it for us, and she was singing it beautifully, very nice, very very pretty. And at the end of her singing it in that beautiful voice of hers, in su- such a pretty way, I I I said I. I don't think that's how you sang it when you wrote it. I, I, I think I think it was way down out of your guts. I confess, I confess, right out of tears and and sadness and sorrow that she was doing. And she said, "Rod, that's right." You know. And I said, "Well, then I want to hear that when you sing it, right? Because I want to sing it that way. I confess, I way down inside, it's not the way it's supposed to be." And then all I have left is, please, God, give mercy. Please give me mercy. I don't deserve anything else. I, it's not like, ooh, there's a, you know, I've earned some right now. Even the act, some time of confession, we stop short, we stop after we confess and we think, now I've done it, I'm okay, I'm good, good to go. No. If outside of the mercy of God, we're totally messed up. And then God offers forgiveness. And this goes back to the kind of shame that we feel, right? When God says you're forgiven, you are forgiven, right? And so what does he do? He he pleads for forgiveness. Mercy and forgiveness. We ask for forgiveness and God grants it. It's a powerful thing. How would you walk if you truly walked as a person who's been forgiven of everything that you've ever done? All the evil thoughts that you've had, all the ones you're going to have, all the ones you had today, all the ones you're going to have tomorrow. What happens if you really truly believe that those were forgiven? Because we don't have to confess and say, I, I'm so worthless, I, I've got nothing. No, no, we're forgiven. We can walk in the freedom that forgiveness offers. The sin no longer binds me. The sin no longer holds me. The sins of God's, of, of the people of Israel, even in that place, they, they, they can be and they are and they will be forgiven when they're acknowledged. 
I love that Daniel appeals to to the idea, to the fact, to the reality that these people bear God's name. They're his people. At the morning service, um, we dedicated and baptized baby Rorick, and, and, and uh, and when we do that, we say, you're one of God's kids. Uh, you you belong to him. He, he's marked you. He, you're you're his. You're you, you don't belong to the world out there. You're not you you don't belong to to evil. You're not Satan's. You you belong to God, and you bear His name. Bearing God's name is such. It, it goes to the to the complete, abject identity of who we are. You are a bearer of God's name. Now, some of you just got you know, completely terrified um, by that, right? Because I, I bear God's name. Uh, somebody asked me, like, if all of Christendom, Rod, was going to be judged by, by your walk with God, like, what would that be like? right? (laughs) Uh, um, No, uh, don't judge Christianity by me, right? Uh, By all of us, or or maybe the good people, you know, like uh, there's good people, Eric, so I think one of them, and, you know, a couple of, a few of the rest of you, but, uh, but, so judge by you, um, but, but not, don't judge me, right? Don't judge Christianity by me. No, we bear God's name. Our identity is found in Christ. We bear the name. And Daniel says, and his appeal to God is, look at these people, they bear your name, and look at the scorn. Look at the way the world laughs at them and mocks them. And that's his appeal, Daniel's appeal to God, please come. Don't allow us to be mocked. Not because we deserve. (laughs) Oh, heavens no. We don't deserve anything. We deserve death. We deserve continual, forever, complete, total, 100% for the rest of our lives. We deserve nothing but condemnation. We deserve slavery. We deserve to stay in captivity. We deserve always to be exiled. And then he closes his prayer. And he says um, these words, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you um, insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. 
Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy hill to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. There will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench but in times of trouble after the 62 sevens the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary the end will come like a flood water will continue until the end desolation has been decreed he will confirm a covenant with many of for one seven in the middle of the seven he will put an end to sacrifice and offering and at the temple He will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed. So we get this whole 7 and 70 times 7 and all its 7s and 10s and what does that all mean? And, And what it means is there's going to be eternal on this earth. There's going to be constant oppression. There's going to be constant pain and suffering. It's not going to go away. It's not going to disappear in a blinding flash the moment you say, I love Jesus. One of the values of the village deeply held by me (laughs) is that we're going to be authentic. We're going to tell you the truth, right? And the truth is, if you give your life to Jesus, it's not going to get better. And you go, well, geez, Rod, thanks for letting us know that. That, Um, see you later, right? No, it's not going to get immediately better. It's not. You're going to make decisions you've never had to make before. You're going to have to do things you've never had to do before. You're going to think differently. It's painful. It's a hard and, and, and difficult journey. It is. But God is with you. And the Spirit comes on you and in you and walks with you. And so here we are in this painful place, in this place of captivity, in in this place of exile, but God is with us through it all, through floods and devastations and and the horrors of a a sin-sick, sin-filled world. And notice the the magic of the 490 is um, numbers mean something in Scripture. They're not just random, right? So you have 40 days and 40 nights. Um, that's the flood, right? Um, and you have um, 40 days in the wilderness, Jesus suffering and struggling. Um, and um, and that's the, the number 40 has meaning to us. The number seven, almost always, as you go through Scripture, the number seven means perfection. Seven is about perfection. And and ten, the number ten is completeness. Right? So what's Daniel saying here? He's he's saying that there's this perfect, perfect completeness. Like this is as good as it gets as far as how long all of this pain and struggle will last. Now, I don't want you to go do the math, right? Because it's 490 years. Okay, it was it was something less than that. And then, and then they're going to go back and rebuild. They did go rebuild. 
part of a, a remnant went back. You read uh, uh, the, the, the story of Zerubbabel going back and rebuilding the wall, finds it all in ruins of the temple, rebuilding the city. Um, those things happened. Um, but the truth is, until Christ comes, there is no freedom. And after Christ has come, we live now in the great in-between, the, however long this is, until Jesus returns. Seventy times seven. What Daniel's letting us know is this, this, this exile is a complete exile. It's a total exile. There's not some way for us to get back on our own. We can't do it. And I love that we talk about 70 times 7. I, I, I love that idea because in Matthew 18, <clears throat> 21 through 22, it says, Then Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? the perfect amount of times, like seven times. Like if somebody messes with you and, and you need, like seven sounds like a good number, right? Seven's kind of, yeah, we'll go with seven, right? Somebody hurts you, you say, uh, I forgive you. They hurt you again, I, I forgive you. When you get to seven, you know, after that, number eight, really, um, really, Derek, you can't just keep climbing up and getting cookies above the refrigerator, right? Seven times is enough, right? Eight times, you're out. Like, we're buying no more cookies, right? We, that's how we think. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times seven, right? So it's 490 times, which is the number of, completeness of complete total like complete forgiveness you keep forgiving and keep forgiving and keep forgiving and keep forgiving and forgive again and you forgive some more and then you forgive again because that's what god does to us that's what god did to his people israel that's what he does for us complete total forgiveness walk in that take joy in that pass that on offer that because you've been forgiven. The people of Israel stand forgiven. God forgives. He's a God who forgives. And he forgives us over and over and over and over and over again. So those stupid sins that I keep committing every time I bring to him, he, he doesn't say, okay, we're done. <laughs> you are so done. He says, I forgive you. Daniel's prayer, deal with shame, deal with sorrow, deal with confession. Plea for mercy, plea for forgiveness. Bear God's name. Forgive. Maybe one or two questions, probably not more than that, if any. Pushbacks, arguments. So I just um, 
was thinking about that it does seem like um, that it's when God forgives us, that doesn't mean that there's no punishment in the midst of that. Right. And we live in that brokenness, right? I mean, they're, they're in captivity. It doesn't go away just because they're forgiven. Anyone else? And that you've been forgiven, right? You can't forgive unless you know deep inside that you've been forgiven, right? Like you have been forgiven. I've been forgiven. Wow. And then you can walk with joy in that. Let's close. Gracious God, um, thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for Daniel's prayer. Help us to acknowledge the truth about ourselves. To use the shame that you put before us to acknowledge that, to know how far we fall. Father, we plead for mercy. We plead for forgiveness. Father, help us to bear your name. To take that name as our identity God, remember your people as you did then and as you do now. In Jesus' name, amen.